0: Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, with your host, Nicholas Rapold. The year is at an end, and I don't have to tell you, I'm not sorry to see 2020 gone. But on the bright side, the podcast has been a wonderful place to take a few moments now and again to talk with friends about the movies we've been watching. This is the 20th episode of The Last Thing I Saw, and we'll be delving into our highlights from the year and movies. I called it the best of 2020, but you may notice a few likely candidates are missing, such as First Cow or Time. That's because we tried to talk about movies that have not been covered so much on this podcast, though a few old favorites do sneak in. For the discussion, I invited a few intrepid critics to pick two or three movies to bring to the table. It's been a long year, so I got a lot of help. Joining me are Amy Taubin, Contributing Editor at Artforum, Eric Hines, chief curator of the Museum of the Moving Image, Beatrice Loiza, a widely published freelance critic, and for the first time Jessica Kiang, a veteran of Variety and other publications and a prominent festival correspondent. We talk about too many movies to list here, but at the end I'll tell you where you can find a list of the titles. And meanwhile, I'll get to work on the next twenty episodes. Welcome to the last thing I saw. For this edition, we're going to talk about the best movies of the year. I, I haven't really assembled such a, a grand uh, group uh, as I have today to go over uh, their favorites from the year. My name's Nick Rapold. Um I'm a practicing critic. Uh, I don't know why I put it that way. But anyway, for this discussion, um, I'm just going to go in turn, introduce our, our wonderful guests, and then we're going to kind of share uh, each of our choices for, you know, maybe The movies that are top in our mind um, and hopefully it won't get chaotic even if it does I'm sure it's going to be entertaining Uh, let's start off with uh, Amy (laughs) Talbin. welcome Amy
1: hi hi everyone you said I should introduce myself I have no idea how to do that anymore well you will hear more about the venue at which I'm a contributing editor art forum when I give you my top 10 or my top three of my top 10 and I've been watching too few movies, so I have a lot of catching up to do, and I have nothing else to say.
0: I, it's funny how this time of year makes makes one feel that way, uh, that we haven't been seeing enough movies. Uh, next on, on our roster uh, is Eric Hines. Welcome, Eric.
2: Thanks, Nick. Nice to be back. Um, and I, I'm Eric Hines, I'm creator of Film at Museum of the Moving Image, um, and also a critic and journalist. And uh, like Amy, I feel like I also have a lot of catching up to do. We're all employed in film. We're all watching movies all the time. And yet it still seems that we're always behind. I think this year, especially um, because release patterns have been off and uh, theatrical has been, you know, sort of decimated. I think it's it's a little bit harder than ever to figure out exactly what we've seen, what's this year, what's next year what year is it it's it's a little bit confusing but at the same time i think it's really important for us to be doing this because a lot of films have not be, been seen and should be
0: it's it's absolutely true i i almost think that just has been life in general uh just feeling one's one's behind uh without the usual uh structures keeping our sanity in place maybe i'm revealing too much um anyway on to our our next participant uh, who i'm very happy to have i said when we were emailing that i was sad we hadn't had her on before Please welcome uh, Jessica Kiang.
3: Hi, I'm Jessica. I am also a practicing critic. In fact, I've been practicing so long, I probably should be better at it than I am by now. Um, I write for (laughs) Variety mostly, um, also for The Playlist, for Sight and Sound, for New York Times, basically kind of anybody who will pay me. Um, so yes, I am freelance. And um, I, yes, to echo what everybody else is saying, strange year, crazy year, and uh, partially feeling like I haven't seen enough. And then also more more, more to the point, I think, is feeling like I've been watching the wrong things. I think the, the absence of theatrical has just meant that there's not that funneling effect that we normally get. So that's where I am at the moment.
0: Yeah, we don't have the usual flow or the usual hierarchies that we kind of settle into of of what to pay attention to, but I that's part of what I've loved about all all of the lists. I don't think we'd get the same variety of of lists really uh if it was an ordinary year. And last but not least is Beatrice Loiza. Uh please welcome. I don't know who I'm saying please welcome to, but let's welcome Beatrice.
4: <laughs> Hello. Um yes, I am glad to be back yet again. And I am a writer and critic, freelance, usually at the AV Club or The Guardian, a bunch of other places, like Jessica said, whoever will pay me. Since we're stuck at home, I haven't felt compelled to watch new movies since we're just streaming them. So I've just, you know, over the past year, I've just been watching a ton of old movies, you know? So uh, my eyes were open to how many things I missed these past few weeks going through all the new movies that came out.
0: That yeah, that's that's another thing. Everything is kind of on on the same level in, in a good way. Maybe not in good ways when because you know I'm kind of pretty desperately needing to see a movie in a movie theater. Uh, so having everything through the straw of streaming is is a little bit uh, tough. Um, a- Amy, that's it, that's an observation that I think we've uh, we've talked about before. Uh, just the sense that uh, you know the whole expanse of, of, of movies is, is before you. So you're comparing one thing to another. I would love to start with one of your top movies, actually.
1: Yeah. So my list, because I write for an art magazine, and so we think about cinema in the largest possible sense. And if you've been looking at art form, uh, the print issue, you will see that I think that art form is as close to the culture section of the Village Voice when it was great as any magazine I'm seeing. And I'm just thrilled to be there because I was thrilled to be part of the Village Voice when it was great. In that the mix of culture and politics, and particularly around gender and race, uh, is really, really, really crucial. And anyway, they let me make a top 10 that isn't just the best feature films you saw, blah, blah, blah. So the first thing on my our form list, it won't be on any other list that I do, and I will do other lists. The slug is the handy affordable to everyone moving image camera because I thought that by far the most extraordinary things I saw were made by people simply picking up their iPhones and speaking truth to power. And we thought about that while we were trying to shape this. And there were also two, at least two, amazing films that use that kind of footage that's captured usually on phones. Uh, One is the Monopoly of Violence, the French documentary by David Dufresne, who made this film over 18 months of the Yellow Vest protests in France. And probably that film was the reason that Macron recently tried to force through this, no one is allowed to film the police or no one is allowed to film at demonstrations, which the French rightly objected to. And I'm sure that film was part of it. So that's part of this. So is Garrett Bradley's time was part of this number one, because time isn't, about half of it is made by its primary subject, Fox Rich, who kept this 20-year video diary while her husband was in prison, so that people would see what her children and what she looked like and were doing over those 20 years. But I was actually thinking about you know, when I started thinking about this, about stuff that comes to us raw, like the extraordinary courage of Darnella Fraser, who was the young woman who shot George Floyd being murdered by the police video.
0: So this is yeah, this is a year of sort of boundaries being being broken. I mean, on and off screen, and, and yeah, it makes natural sense that that would change what our our conceptions of the most important uh, so-called you know moving images. I mean, it's interesting for one thing that we're talking about a documentary impulse there as well. Uh, we're not proclaiming something, you know, a masterpiece because it's some coup of, of fictional storytelling, but looking at things uh, along the parameters of nonfiction. I, and and one other movie you you actually, Gunda is is, is definitely uh, been an important film for you this year. Is that that's is that right?
1: Oh yeah. If I were only doing films, it would be number two. If people don't know what Gunda is, and most people don't, Gunda is a documentary, and it's the titular protagonist is probably a getting-on-in-years sow, a female pig who has borne many litters on a farm that is, um, you know, it's not a factory farm, it's a free-range farm. And the director, amazing Russian director, Viktor Kosakovsky, had a setup of small, remotely controlled video cameras. And the film begins with nine minutes of Gunda, and she's lying in the doorway of her house. I don't know what you call a pig's house, a hatch, something. She's lying there, and you can't quite tell if she's sleeping or what she's doing and eventually you begin to see these little piglets emerge and she bears 11 piglets and the film then is her raising them and tending to them with extraordinary the kind of attention and care she lavishes on them and the cameras see all this there are other animals on this farm and there are some poultry but Mostly, it's Gunda and her piglets who are growing. And eventually, these cameras watch while something happens that must happen to Gunda every year. And I won't say what that is, but Gunda, after this terrible thing has happened, looks into the lens of the camera as if she somehow knows that They have been paying this kind of attention to her, these things, and they should be able to do something to help her. And of course, they can't. And so it is tragic. It is extraordinarily beautiful. And the fact of having these cameras be able to be remote, so there are no people there, just as, you know, you don't see any of the farmhands or the owners, or anyone. It's just her alone, the cameras, and these things happen, and the last thing happens, as it must, extremely stealthily, so she's not warned by the presence of people. Anyway, it is just an extraordinary film. It's very, very beautiful as well. It's black and white.
0: Yeah, the camera is just so attentive in, in, in such a patient way. Sometimes when people talk about a patient camera, it's kind of a euphemism for a movie that's Uh, a little on the deliberate uh, side. Uh, In this case, I just mean that it it really waits to see just the slightest whisper of a change in Gunda and the other animals. I appreciate it it coming to the speed of of whatever uh, animals is on screen.
3: Gunda, I only saw very recently. I'm actually currently involved in trying to put together a best documentaries of the year feature and so i'm rapidly catching up that's my that's my big catch up in the next week or so is is to pick up on all the non-fiction films that i've missed during the year so gunda was one of those i watched it last week and it's it is everything that she says and more it's tremendous um, but one of the things that I was sort of identifying within the things that I have particularly responded to since the pandemic and that Gunda plays into very nicely is a quality of silence, actually, and stillness. And I mean, in uh, in Amy's list as well, uh, well, not in her list, actually, but, but she did mention Time, for example, another tremendous um, documentary, which I've only just recently seen. And for me, it's, it's an incredibly powerful piece of work, but there's also the, the most, possibly the most powerful or most resonant image or, or scene from it is, is the moment where Fox Rich is on the telephone and she um, is waiting to hear news of whether or not her husband, um, who has, uh, if people don't know the, the movie, uh, go and watch it for one thing, and um, her husband who has been uh, incarcerated um, and will be incarcerated for 20 years Incredibly unjustly, but she's waiting to hear whether or not um, he's going to uh, be qualified for for release, and it's this moment where she has to hang on, like wait on hold, basically, while uh, an impersonal and bureaucratic voice at the other end of the line goes about doing whatever it is that they're doing. But it's the quality of her silence, the the sort of the absolutely heartbreaking politeness with which this force of nature woman, there's no other way to describe her. She's an incredible, she's possibly the most stunning 2020 movie character, if you can say such thing, of a a real person. Um, but, But she's being forced into this inactivity and forced into silence. And there's something about that. Silence um, or that sort of almost bearing witness to somebody else 's silence that is something that i found i 've really responded to this year, even in in fiction films, um, because my favorite films of the year one of them is uh, technically a silent film i mean it 's not it 's not silent um, but there 's no sync dialogue and the another of them it 's a fiction film but it 's most one of its most uh, startling scenes. Is, complete, is played completely silently and completely wordlessly as, as well. So I'm kind of wondering if this is partly because of, you know, as, as a result of the introspection and the, the isolation that we've all felt during the pandemic, whether um, for, for some reason since the pandemic, I am responding stronger to things that have this quality or have even just scenes where they pick up on silence and uh, wordlessness.
1: I'm really curious about what this film is (laughs) that you're mentioning.
3: Oh, well, there's there's two of them. So my list was uh, an incredible mess and uh, rather too long as well because I always have this problem that, I'm, uh, I'm I think I'm I'm very lucky amongst all of you to have been able to actually go to two physical festivals this year so I went to Venice and to San Sebastian which were the two bigger festivals that that actually took place in physical form this year so I saw um, a lot of films that are you know uh, only now kind of making their way onto the festival circuit in the US but this was obviously already after I had we had already been through months of lockdown here in Berlin where I live so responding to those was slightly different the two that I was just referring to then well, one of them um, is probably quite a high profile one. It's the Georgian film called Beginning, which actually won in San Sebastian. Um, and it's the one where it, that I was saying has this one scene, which is a real patience tester. I mean, it's, this is a, an incredibly challenging, very difficult and very provocative film, but possibly even more than, than it's extremely um, it's not graphic, actually. It's an incredibly beautiful rape scene, if you can call a rape scene ever extremely beautiful. Um, but this very uh, there's this uh, there's another sequence which is actually the one that probably caused the most walkouts. The lead actress lies down in a forest and she seems to go to sleep, um, and she kind of plays possum. She plays dead um, with her her little son, her her son who's uh, running around and trying to play with her, and it just basically ends up staying on her on her face, on her on her. Prone form um, for I don't know how I don't know how long it's it's minutes anyway it's it's an unacceptably long time really um, but uh, it's it sort of reorients the entire axis of the film I think that that scene around it and it's something that I I think about regularly I think about it twice a day just that odd scene and and how how it changes how you respond to the film. Um, that's a that's the film is called Beginning and it's by a Georgian female director, debut director as well, which is unbelievable that this is a, a first film. I really can't can't uh, get over that. A Georgian director called Deya Kolum Begashvili and um, the lead actress is performance as well really needs to be called out. Her name is Ia Sukatashvili I think and um, she's absolutely tremendous in it. It's this very Hard-hitting, difficult story, um, beautifully crafted, beautifully put together of a the wife of a Jehovah's Witness pre- preacher, and uh, in the wake of a of an attack on their on the Jehovah's Witness uh, meeting house, um, and her life variously unraveling, but she remains this incredibly mysterious and often very silent character. So she she's extremely enigmatic, and I think there's something about our experience during this whole thing um, that uh, makes me m- far more uh, responsive to things that might previously, in fact, have tested my patience. And conversely, I'm, I find noisy and loud and abrasive things far less uh, uh, easy to, to deal with at the moment. And sorry, the other one. So my, my actual favourite, favourite film of the year is a, a film called My Mexican Bretzel. And this is the one that has no sync dialogue. Um, it's by a, a Mexican director called uh, Nuria Jimenez-Lorang. And it's just one of the most playful, delightful, entertaining, melancholic tricks. It's a, it's a series of tricks. It's a, a home video footage um, or home home Super 8 footage, actually, beautifully shot. Like proper classic vintage 16 and 8 millimeter footage that her I believe her grandparents shot. And there's a soundtrack, so there's occasional sort of sound effects put onto it, but also the text, there's text on screen, so there's no spoken dialogue, but there's text on screen, which are excerpts from the diary of Vivian Barrett, and we immediately associate the woman on screen with Vivian Barrett, and it's basically her, her, we're inside her mind. And it's only towards the very end that you start realizing the very many layers of artifice and trickery that are going on and it's somehow it's but it's such a generous film and such a delightful film It's only like seventy two minutes long as well it's a little biscuit of a film, but you don't feel scammed you or, or cheated um you're kind of delighted by the trick you're it's like like you are by a by a really brilliantly pulled off magic trick. Um, and it's also the only film I think I can remember in, in recent memory, anyway, where the end credits actually completely change how you view what you've just watched and send you down several um, Google rabbit holes at the end. So it's a really wonderful thing. I don't even think it has um, distribution yet anywhere. But I was uh, recently on the jury at the International Film Festival of Mannheim-Heidelberg, uh, and we gave it the, the top prize. So I really, I really, really hope some, and, and I. I it's one of those ones as well I'm so delighted to have discovered because I'm very used to my favourite films of the year being, I mean, stuff like Beginning, which is incredible and brilliant, but, you know, not exactly a date movie that you can recommend to members of your family. Um, whereas My Mexican Pretzel, if, if some enterprising distributor picks it up and, and, and runs it right, I really think it could actually, it could do the numbers because it's just such a pleasurable experience as well as everything else.
0: I just want to continue with what you were saying about a feeling of stillness, because that that brings to mind, uh, you know, one or two movies that uh, other folks really enjoyed this year. I mean, one movie that comes to mind in that regard is "Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets," because not necessarily that it's like a serene movie, but it's definitely a uh, a hangout movie or a movie that's in a spot in a space you're staying somewhere. And I, you know, I don't know. This this might be taking a slightly different direction, but that's also something that I, I just feel lacking. You know, it's the only place I'm staying these days is is at home. Uh, I'm not spending time. Uh, I'm not dwelling or coexisting as, as as would be just normal or regular in in other places. You know, in town. You know, whether it's with friends or just being in a in a bookstore or something. Or I, I don't know. Disassociating in a supermarket—you know, everyone's favorite pastime—but bloody nose, empty pockets.
2: I know a couple of you have that high on on your list. Sure, yeah, I can, I can, I can talk about that for a little bit. I mean, it's a, it's a film that I saw a few times before we all went into hiding, um, and have watched also since then. And I think it's a sort of film where I think that it's tragic that it's such a hangout film. It's such a film to see with people. It's about people being with people. And furthermore, it's about people being with, you know, near strangers. You know, the idea that you can find community among people that you don't necessarily work with or know outside of that particular space, which I think is cinephilia as well. Um, so it's really unfortunate that that film couldn't come out during a time when we could reflect on that in, in rooms together. At the same time, it has taken on a different level of, of I long for those spaces to see a film about a space like that has been very meaningful. And I'm grateful for a film like that existing this year that, that can kind of bring me there and make me long to go back. Um, but you know, it, it, Bloody Nose is it's, it's it's a part of a, there are a number of films and, um, among them time, which has been talked about already um, which I think is an absolute extraordinary uh, work uh, of cinema that are kind of predicated on a level of Complicity and collaboration between a documentary filmmaker and, or filmmakers and those on the other side of the camera, which I think is the further we get in this particular moment in history, the more essential that seems to me to have that um, be a part of a process. And I think that Bloody Knows, you know, a lot has been written about its status as nonfiction or fiction. And I mean, on one hand, I couldn't care less because I just respond to the film and what it is. But on the other hand, I think that it speaks to, the kind of history of of documentary film, which is always, you know, dealing with questions of authenticity and artificiality, and what at what point um, in the process do you introduce the artificial? Is it something that gets introduced on day one, or is it something that happens in the editing suite? But either way, that is part of what gets navigated, um, which is not to say that all things are lies or that everything is a fiction. I don't mean that at all, but I do think that there's just, you're constantly navigating these things and it's a question of artistic process and conscience and something about bloody nose, um, you know, having, you know, the, the origin of, 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 that film is like, there are some very strong creative choices made from the very beginning in terms of where it's going to take place and who's going to participate. And those are constructs. And yet what you see on camera comes from, I think, authentic, authentic, behavior. And I find that incredibly fascinating. And, and and anyway, but I think it's somewhat similar to, not similar, but I think in this, where I was going with that in terms of time is that sense of complicity, the idea of a time doesn't exist unless Um, that filmmaker and those subjects are on the same page about what this is going to be. And also on the same page about like kind of going into uncharted territory together, wherever that might lead. And so it leads to certain scenes in time that I've simply never seen in a documentary film before level of intimacy that's offered up. Um, And I think in a very, very, very different way with far different and lower stakes, Bloody Nose, I think also offers me things that I normally don't get a chance to see on screen, and they would not have happened if there had not been a certain level of complicity navigated and and, and brokered between filmmaker and subject.
4: Yeah, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is also a film I had very, very high on my list. And to echo what Eric said, I think that the artificial conceit is almost beside the point, in a sense, because, you know, what, Bill and turner ross are getting at is a much deeper truth about how you know atmosphere forges social bonds maybe just as much as as alcohol which is also a central player in the film Um, but you really get a sense of these characters who are people that the filmmakers you know some are former actors some are just like complete just random people who don't have any acting background, but they really feel like fully formed characters, like just personalities that you'd meet at a bar, you know, the way they engage with each other, the way they maybe keep to themselves or shut down or explode over the course of a day really captures this, I don't know, this rhythm that you only really feel in spaces like a bar and, and the editing style. Part of the reason I think it works so well. I mean, You have conversations that are extremely heavy, people talking about addiction, traumatic events, and those kind of easily existing and flowing into more joking conversation, just like random, you know, whatever's on the person next to you's mind. And, you know, topping all of that off is this very deep sense of melancholy, this end of the world feeling that I think makes this movie for me just so quintessentially 2020. In addition to the fact that, you know, these past nine months, I and I'm sure many other people have, I'm sure, wanted to just be intoxicated most of the day. So <laughs> I don't know. It was, it's a really amazing film. And I really hope more people see it because often these nonfiction films that like nobody hears of, there's this impression that there's like a difficulty to them or an inaccessibility. But, you know, this I feel is just like so real and enjoyable and should resonate with like all different types of people.
2: I just want to note that as soon as the word intoxicated was mentioned, Jessica Kiang's hand went up on the
3: stage. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly did. I, I was going to interject with what, what makes you assume that I'm not intoxicated right now. Baby.
4: <laughs> well, um, you proved my point. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, but uh, no, I did also just want to want to pick up on, on a couple of things that were said there because um, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is a film I only didn't put on my list because I actually did not so long ago recorded an entire podcast about it. So um, I'm I'm a big fan of it as well. Um, and uh, as as uh, Eric may have already hinted, I'm also I'm just generally a big fan of bars. Um, so uh, this was, you know, very pertinent to my interest, shall we say? But I think there's also something um, interesting about it, this this discussion of, of its classification, whether or not it deserves to be called a documentary, um, and. Oh, to use the, the absolutely horribly overused cliche of blurring the boundaries between fact and fiction, right? So, And it was the sort of standard bearer for that debate this year. But I, I'm, I'm wondering, and I, this is like an open question I don't have an answer for, but I'm wondering if, along with all of the other boundaries and categories and sort of hard and fast lines that we tend to draw that have become blurred, um, because, you know, between movies and TV, between the big screen experience, between the small ex- screen experience, I, I wonder and I hope that that, that sort of really um, prescriptive notion of what a documentary is or that there's that some sort of has to be some sort of fidelity to an objective, um, you know, removed truth. Can sort of flourish, and I think that people can explore the gray area a little bit more because I, I, I kind of agree with Eric. I think that the gray area, the places where where the filmmaker is in collaboration with their subjects, not necessarily you know doing the the classical remove thing, are actually uh, have have given us some of the most. Uh, important and compelling documentary nonfiction work of the year anyway. And also just to 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 bring it back around to my hobby horse, which is my Mexican pretzel, because I'm just going to keep on turning every single conversation back to my Mexican pretzel until all of you guys watch it. There is uh, a, an odd sort of thing going on around it as well, where people don't know where to put it. So there, it is actually classified in a few places, like I think in IMDB and stuff as a documentary. Um, which wh- I don't want to give too much away, but which once you see it, you realize that it's, I mean, it it really isn't a documentary. It may be using found footage, but it's not a documentary in in that sense, in the sense of that people I think are, are expecting it to be. And yet to actually say that it's not a documentary is almost a spoiler, almost um, sort of clues you into uh, one of the very many, many layers of, of, of trickery that it's going to, to pull on you. Um, and we even had this problem when we were giving out the prizes in Mannheim Heidelberg that the top prize, I mean, we wanted to give it the top prize anyway, but the top prize goes to the director and the second prize, which are the two cash prizes that they give away. The second prize is for a script writing, which goes, goes to the writer. And there was no way that we could have given it the second prize, because even to do that would almost spoil the joy of discovery that people are going to have with this film. So, so there's there's a, a really interesting sort of larger question that that I think all of this is is opening up, and it, because those categories are starting to be exploded, just because people's experience is no longer so so neatly categorised.
1: I had a very interesting conversation with Garrett Bradley, the uh, filmmaker of Time, at Sundance, and she said. This was an interesting question for her, because the New York Times was a producer on this movie, and so and they had been a producer on her very first short film, and so she went to them uh with this project Time, and they came in and then she said they had to have this conversation on was there a difference between journalism, the New York Times? And what she was doing, which was making a documentary nonfiction film, and that produced a really interesting discussion for her. And last week, I had an email from a woman who's been working, you know, a documentary scholar, Pat Afterhyde, who is doing a project for the Ford Foundation, where the Ford Foundation is interested in in seeing really what filmmakers and critics think about parameters on documentary in relation to truth. And, of course, that is extremely important at this moment since, in part, we are part of the problem of proposing that there is no absolute reality and it's all relative and see where we are with this today. So, anyway... I find it more interesting or funny that a series like The Crown was forced to put a disclaimer at the end saying it was a work of fiction because everyone was saying, see, we finally see how terrible the royal family is. And so they have this disclaimer on The Crown. Um, And I think all those are, you know, they're kind of like spigots that are going off in relation to this this issue. I have not seen Bloody Nose's Empty Pockets. I will. I'm not so fond of movies that have a lot of guys hanging out in bars and nothing in the illustrations i would seen for this film suggested to me that there were a bunch of women in, in those bars. So I just lost it. You know, it didn't make it to the top of my list.
0: Well, the, I, if, if I can just uh, chime in on about, about Bloody Nose, that, I, I, there, there are um, uh, women at the bar, and then the bartender for, for most of the movie is also um, is, is, is a woman. And, uh, and actually, there's a really moving monologue, uh, too, of a woman who's sort of just, I don't know what you call it. She spills her guts, I guess, you know, in, in a way that I probably feel like all of us have done at some point uh, at the end of a long night. And uh, it, that's one of, one of my uh, cherished moments from that film. And, and actually, I, I just wanted to also mention thinking about documentary and shaping it. A lot of people already observe this, but I just want to drop in as another example of something maybe more akin to uh, a film journal uh, or film journaling, uh, basically short films that are being shown on TV now. Uh, um, and that's the, the how-to um, series on HBO, um, which are just these beautiful, perfectly <laughs> observed short films, basically. Um, but they're also, um, they're assembled from, I guess, just a ton of what used to be called, I guess, B-roll <laughs> in a way of, of scenes around the city. Um, and then they're shaped in a way that I think in clumsier hands would have felt artificial, uh, kind of just organizing things but there's this fascinating dialectic with it where it feels stream of consciousness. So I don't know. I just want to drop a mention of how to, if if we're talking about documentary a a little bit, I also happened to watch all of Nathan Fielder uh, again this summer. And I guess he produces uh, how to, and speaking of bloody nose, empty pockets. There's a Nathan Fielder episode where he has a whole boondoggle about a bar that he turns into a, Theaters, so it can remain open and let people smoke, if I remember that that's how it goes. That almost feels like uh, like a, a precursor to, to the concept of Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. But that, yeah, that was the kind of uh, train of thought that this discussion set off in my, my mind. Also, a shout out to a movie uh, that Amy might be discussing, To the Ends of the Earth, a uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie, which is about a reality TV host, basically travel TV host. So I don't know. I just thought I'd throw all those things into the mix.
1: Okay. I'll jump in on To the Ends of the Earth, which I'm writing about for Metrograph. And it starts streaming from Metrograph and is a film that should be seen on the big screen. I mean, I was lucky enough to have seen it on the big screen. It's Kiyoshi Kurosawa. And it's so interesting at this moment because I think of the majority of Kiyoshi Kurosawa's films as absolutely right for this moment, where there is this low level of dread and panic throughout the entire film that sometimes pays off in something terrible and sometimes it's just a constant low level of dread and panic. And that began to change when he made uh, Tokyo Sonata, which was the first film of his, I think, that was less of a genre film and more of an art film, and it is a film that stands, you know, that says music is transformative, and music is liberating and can be cathartic and ecstatic. And um, this, for me, is like a sequel to that aspect of Tokyo Sonata. It is this young woman who is his Anna Karina. I mean, he, he can't take the camera off her, and she is... Lovely beyond belief, but lovely in a very contemporary feminist way. Uh, she's got a lot of assertiveness and values of freedom and is the, the talking host on a travelogue. And she goes to this totally strange place where they look at her like she is this strange creature, this small very beautiful Japanese young woman who walks around in a jean jacket and shorts in Uzbekistan, and they're making this travelogue for this travel series, Uh, and so she has to eat the food and go on this outrageous ride in an amusement park, and she's with an all-male crew, and there are men staring at her all the time, but there are some women as well, but You have the sense of her total isolation. And then she finds herself as a musician, as a singer. And it almost happens, you know, miraculously. There's also a kind of miraculous white goat. Uh, I don't want to give it away. And then something potentially terrible happens. But I very seldom see movies that say, That was what it was like to travel alone when I was 25 years old, I was 30 years old, in places, and I still have dreams about that, uh, of finding myself in someone's backyard and not knowing how to get out of it. It is a really magical film. It's very beautiful, and it's totally atypical uh, in relation to things like creepy and other recent films of... Kurosawa.
3: I I think it's a terrific film as well. I think I saw it in 2019 at the Busan Film Festival Um, and one of the things I think is so lovely about it is that it's essentially a it's a culture clash movie in many ways. It's a fish out of water movie but it's about a Japanese woman in Uzbekistan so it's a kind of an inter-Asia culture clash that we wouldn't normally see. I think oftentimes when we see or we when we think of that type of film we assume it's you know a Westerner going to going to Asia or whatever it is, but this illumination of those two cultures is really uh, sort of beautifully balanced and and kind of mutually reinforcing. So yeah, it's terrific.
1: Uh, I mean, I'm watching it now because I have to write about it on the small screen, but it really suffers for that. It's one of those movies you should watch it, nevertheless. <laughs> but, uh, but it does suffer because it has beautiful, beautiful images of vast fields and the space and this absolutely perfect, very delicate young woman in the middle of this vast space and her taking possession of it is is what's amazing about the film. I was very much thinking about Thelma and Louise and how Ridley Scott insisted that those women had to be tall and big so that they could cope with that landscape of the Southwest. And that he's done exactly the opposite visually here.
0: For some reason, this has me thinking that in, in some ways we're we're talking about films that are, are helping us process experience. While you were talking about that film, I started thinking about uh, Martin Eden, because that's a movie that's, it's about a, a sailor who becomes a writer. It's based on the Jack London story. But when I watch it, I felt very conscious of the character being a person who's kind of reconciling different kinds of experience. Um, Eric, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I do know that Mark Needham
2: was was another favorite of yours. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is a film like some of the other uh, narrative films on my list that I saw in 2019, like a number of us who have seen Films and, and major festivals, uh, you know, they tend to not come out till a year later. And then a lot of these things were delayed even further because of the disarray of theatrical. But no, Martin Eden is just um, an incredible work of narrative um, in terms of how it handles time. The sort of growth of a human being, growth of a human being as a thinking person, um, as a literate person, social pressures and aspects of that. I'm, I'm very fond of the source novel and went into it with pretty high uh, standard of what I thought an acceptable adaptation would be and was pretty blown away by its handling of it. Uh, but, you know, transposing it to a different time and place, but actually I think really serving the source material quite well um, reminded me a bit of Leos Carax's Pola X in terms of adaptation of an ambitious and, and in some ways very difficult to adapt source text and taking it somewhere else and making it kind of a, a exist in in, in the realm of cinema, independent almost of its source text. So uh, very high on Martin Eden.
0: Also a movie that uh, weaves in both actual silent documentary footage, sort of news really, um, and also maybe simulated or tinted. I'm not sure I ever uh, got to the bottom of that exactly, but scenes from like, you know, 1920s um, Italy, while at the same time, the whole movie takes place in kind of an indeterminate swath of time um, in, I don't know, early,
2: early modern 20th century. I, I'm not sure that I ever got to the bottom of exactly where all that footage was sourced or if it was all sourced, but so many wonderful things have been brought up here that it's impossible to cover in this uh, space. But riffing a little bit on what Amy was saying about the crown, there's there's something about elements of truth and history and documentary that narrative films can have a sort of parasitic relationship with, that they can benefit, they can sort of hoof off of uh, some some notions of, of established truth for their own fictional ends, whereas documentaries, or at least responsible ones, tend to wear their imperfections on their sleeves, which makes me, you know, conversely, trust them even more. At this point,
0: I might want to jump to a film, maybe just entirely on another part of the cinema spectrum. It's also a movie that, uh, I won't say fell out of conversation so much as was thrown out by some segments of viewers. And so I never really felt like I got a chance to learn or hear an, an enough about it. Um, Beatrice, take it away.
4: Yeah, so the film uh, that Nick is referring to is Cuties. If you've only heard one thing about it, it probably has to do with uh, Netflix's marketing snafu um, and the fact that they gave you know this tiny French film promotional artwork that was in large part misrepresentative and seemed to glorify in the hyper sexualization of young girls that the film actually has a much more complex view on stepping back, I personally really love French coming of age films. I think that the French are way ahead of the curve relative to the u s in terms of imagining teenage or prepubescent girlhood from different angles and incorporating issues of race and class. So this was already kind of <laughs> of interest for me. But I was really moved by the director, Maïmuna Dukure's really measured and intelligent consideration of, of really thorny and provocative issues, um, while also just being like, the movie's like a really pleasurable experience that's just, you know, emotionally kind of brings you in really easily. Also, it's like this weird cross between dance moms and Verhoeven's showgirls, which is something I've kept in my mind ever since I've watched it. But yeah, I mean, it's just like the story of a 12-year-old Black and Muslim girl who lives in the Parisian banlieue. Uh, she's sort of a loner, sort of tomboyish, in part because of you know her Muslim background. And she falls in with a group of girls who are sort of amateur dancers <laughs> And they draw inspiration from racy YouTube videos and hip hop videos and what have you. And, you know, it's it's not just like this strange hobby. We see that they're part of this competitive circuit of up and coming dancers. And so we follow the protagonist, Amy. She like learns to dance, she changes her clothes so she can fit into this group and eventually becomes a sort of leader figure. And eventually her social media antics, she like takes them a bit too far and she's kicked out of the group. So, you know, on the one hand, I I found it to, you know, just be like a moving coming of age, thanks to, you know, these really incredible youth performances. You know, but for me, what, what makes this movie so powerful is that it's not just a flat critique of how modern culture encourages little girls to grow up faster than they need to be, than they need to, um, you know, to me, it also really wonderfully captures this, like, bizarre ritualistic way that young girls whose parents probably aren't talking to them about boys and sex are learning about and and realizing themselves as sexual beings, um, you know, what it feels like to get to a point in your adolescence when you're looking at your body in the mirror or in the camera and, you know, performing in such a way that you're led to believe or actually feel is empowering. And so, like, The way the director shows these girls practicing their dance moves and and performing them ultimately, there's there's sort of a joyousness to it. You know, there's a sense of community and female bonding that's really real and tangible. And the dancing is, you know, not super easy. It's clearly a skill that these girls are um, developing, you know, even if it is morally reprehensible or what have you. And, you know, I I don't think that the movie wants you to to dismiss that entirely, the reality of that feeling that would draw someone into doing that and taking part in this ritual. And I think a lot of critical appraisals have kind of glossed over that part, in part out of need to counter the misconception spearheaded by, you know, very online conservative outrage. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was really wonderful. I was very moved by it. And um, I kind of, in my, in my mind, I kind of place it somewhere in between like Andrea Arnold's fish tank and The Fits, in terms of the uh, canon of coming of age dance movies about young women somewhat around the poverty line. <laughs> so yeah, that's my spiel. So
0: yeah, that's Cuties. There are, of course, like a like a ton of, of other movies that you know, I think are probably all on uh, close close to our our hearts. I mean that I think we've talked about a bit before. That's the only reason why maybe we haven't talked more at length about them. First cow, I, I'd be surprised if anyone wants to turn first cow into a sacred cow that, that they want to slaughter. But uh, that's I, you know definitely close close to my heart from earlier in the year. Bean pole. Now I'm suddenly blanking. I know someone really liked bean bean pole here.
1: I really like Beanpole. I think Beanpole is an absolutely great movie. And luckily enough, I saw it on the screen and I haven't looked at it again. But it also seems a movie for right now, because if you think we are suffering, you have no idea (laughs) until you see this movie what suffering is. Uh, Because this is the aftermath of the Second World War in Leningrad. Uh, And it's pure starvation. And it's these two women. And one of them accidentally does something terrible to the other. uh, And she doesn't mean it. And part of the film is about the continuation of that friendship. But part of it is just the confrontation of people, even in that situation, even people who are, you know, This is the Soviet Union, but they were rich and they didn't have to face much of it. Finally hearing what it is to be a woman who has to be a camp follower uh, in the Second World War is one of the most extraordinary scenes, I think, in film history. But um, it is partly the friendship between those two women in the most terrible situation and the idea that they have... Endured because of that friendship, which is, which is decimating to both of them. It's also an absolutely fantastically, beautifully made film. Uh, you know, it is a film that is on the screen the equivalent of great Russian literature, although I don't think it's an adaptation
3: pole was also on on my list, um, and uh, you, I think you kind of mentioned it to me that it might be one that you wanted to talk about. But I just wanted to say I also saw it on the big screen. I saw it in 2019 in Cannes at that on regard and I think what was also particularly Im, Im, important to me and impressive to me was that I'd also seen this director's first film also in Cannes uh, several years before. It's a film called Closeness. Um, this is Kantemir Balagov's first film, and while i uh, had really uh, marked him out as as a filmmaker to to keep my eye on and and i thought was going to be and as he has proven to be with beanpole because it's aside from all of its other remarkable qualities beanpole is an incredibly controlled and formally rigorous and beautifully crafted piece of work and so i had i had noticed these things in closeness but um actually uh going back to to our recurring theme here um, I had a huge ethical issue, issue with, with closeness because in it, he, he uh, used one piece of footage, which was actually a very degraded VHS of an execution um, that took place, an extreme an act of extremist terrorism. And I found that just absolutely indefensible because uh, we don't have very many, oh, certainly I don't, I hope I don't have very many taboos left, but um, Watching the point of an actual real person's death um, on screen uh, in the context of a fiction film and the context of a narrative film um, seems to me to be one taboo that we should stringently uphold. And so I had had to write this extremely um, uh, ambivalent variety review of it where I was saying, well, on the one hand, he is this I mean, he's an undoubtedly blazing talent. Um, on the other hand, uh, he makes this uh, kind of unforgivable ethical breach, and so when it came to Beanpole, apart from everything else, I was just so relieved, I suppose, to see that he hadn't he hadn't done that kind of thing again. And yet, in the scene that that Amy you referred to, where the the terrible thing happens, which actually happens within the first twenty minutes of the film, and um, I actually did spoil it, I guess, in my in my review, but it was partly because I really, I really tussled with whether or not I should do it, but it was almost as a trigger warning because it's, it's a desperately upsetting scene um, that happens in the first act. But I was just on a purely um, film critic, arcane level, uh, impressed and relieved to, to, that he has proven that he can attain the same degree of impact, the same degree of provocation and power without necessarily crossing those lines.
1: Um, I think we also have to say that he was 26 when he made Beanpole, and God knows how young he was when he made the film before it. Uh, So he is extraordinary. But you know, these ethical questions, I was going to jump in earlier, Jessica, because you are a critic that I read, and I profoundly respect, and yet (laughs) I have such ethical issues with beginning. I mean, I loathe beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a film that in its first extended scene, I thought how brilliant, this is extraordinary. It's a scene where an entire part of the village that belongs to this church file into this church one by one and you see a whole community and there's not a word spoken and it is just amazing. And after that, I thought it became an exploitation film. I didn't believe a bit of it. I thought the scene of the rape was ludicrous. I didn't believe her character. And there was such violation of everything that women have thought through in relation to filming things like rape and creating uh, a kind of edge of pornography which i thought continued through the rest of the film i mean i just found it loathsome (laughs) i'm sorry I
3: mean you are you're absolutely not alone uh, Amy and um can I also say back at you I have I've been reading you for a long time so um thank you very much for the implied compliment of reading me at all uh, I'm very flattered um but yes you're definitely not alone in that response and actually I think that even my own response to it is one of those uh, extremely extreme responses that that teachers totally on the brink of revulsion at all moments and i think that's partly why i think it's brilliant because very little ha- affects me i mean i i'm sure we're all in the same boat we all watch a lot of movies and very little um uh really punches through um or you know affects me or makes me think about things in a new way and possibly an extremely uncomfortable and distasteful way um, and I, I am fully aware that that beginning um, exactly does that for, for many people, and, and crosses a line for many people. I will say I think that the rape scene. To be honest, that was it was the rape scene at which I think I really decided that this was uh, a film that was going to figure largely in my imagination for for a long time to come, just because I have never seen a rape scene like it. So, so what you're saying is entirely correct that that there is uh, a kind of a lexicon that women especially and she is a female filmmaker that women especially have have a a filmic lexicon that we have developed to be able to to confront rape um, and sexual abuse and she entirely disregards it now whether she disregards it to create something else or or whether she is simply, as you sort of say, exploitatively or pornographically thumbing her nose at, at that is, I guess, in the eye of the beholder. For me, I found it such a, a fantastically knotty uh, and difficult, but ultimately uh, really uh, fertile uh, way of, of separating out the issues of consent and complicity. And there's there's no doubt that it is a rape scene and that there is absolutely no consent. But there is an element of of her own complicity, and whether or not that is as a result of, a, of all of this, the other things, all of the other currents that are roiling through the rest of the film about her religious situation, the fact that she's married to this preacher, the fact that she's she used to be an actress, there's all these things, and she has had to be then in this very strictured Jehovah's Witness community, which we have given the impression she doesn't fully... She doesn't fully really uh, believe in. She's sort of married into it and is trying to play the role of, of the the dutiful pastor's wife. So yes, whether or not that sort of incredibly um, unnerving uh, suggestion of complicity or self-punishment or whatever it is that goes on in that scene, I think the fact that the way that scene is shot made me really question all of those things. It g- gave it incredible power and incredible value for me. But again, I'm, it's not a film I'm ever going to be able to convince somebody else about, and I wouldn't ever try.
1: At the risk of taking this back and forth into where other people are going to get bored if they're not interested in this area, I would just ask if, very quickly, if living in Berlin, you know the films of Fred Kellerman, because those are the films that I thought of when I saw this film, that there was so much of Fred Kellerman who walked that line in his films, and sometimes I thought he went over the edge And I think he stopped making movies and just went back to being a philosopher. I have no idea what happened to him. But he made three remarkable features. But the issue of complicity and consent comes up in, Nick, you forgot all about what was second on my list, because better than any feature film I saw is the TV series I May Destroy You by Michaela Carl and which I just think is an absolutely monumental and great work. Um, but beyond that, beyond the question, those that question, which is kind of what the drama of the series is based around, is just her as a character and an actor. I found her performance the most liberating thing I've ever seen because it's just this giant fuck you to any conventions or laws around gender and the presentation of self. It's like she doesn't think of it or consider it at all. And I just found that and her performance and the entire series, because she's the showrunner, uh, one of the directors and the writer for I May Destroy You, which as fiction goes, was certainly the strongest thing I saw this year.
3: Yeah, in answer to your question, I have—I do—I'm not aware of the films of Fred Kellerman at all, so I will I have something to search out now. But I did, however, watch all of *I May Destroy You*, and it's—it is, uh, as you say, tremendous.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm so glad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm glad you talked about uh, *I May Destroy You*. I—I w- was—I I wanted to bring it up, uh, but there is another movie that I also do want to mention that also does interesting things with getting really deep into uh character's subjectivity and, and just absolute, you know, uniqueness of point of view, filtering it through that. And that's um, preparations to be together for an unknown period of time, which is getting a kind of just under the wire release.
3: Yes, I, I think it is. And it's also been announced as Hungary's entry for the Oscars. So uh, I think that's why it's probably getting that bump before the end of the year.
1: I talked to every distributor I know after I saw it, and I said, if you don't pick up this film, you are absolutely crazy.
3: Um, I saw it at its, its premiere in Venice, um, and I reviewed it there. And then, um, actually, I rewatched it which is unusual for me. I, I find I don't normally rewatch films. I'm always a little bit intimidated by when people, uh, when other critics refer to, you know, that, well, of course, the, the second time I saw it, I noticed this. I'm just like, my God, where do you guys find the time? But I did actually rewatch this one because it was one of the selections of the Philadelphia Film Festival, which I was also on the jury of this year, and we ended up giving it the, the top prize. Um, so uh, safe to say, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite a fan of this. Um, I think. Uh, one of the things that I particularly loved about it, and I, I did write about this in the review, but it felt it feels to me, I mean it's very noir indebted, um, but it feels to me like it's almost one of the, the the sort of standard bearers that I keep on trying to find or I keep on looking for, along with great female anti-heroes, which I just don't think there are enough of, like proper, you know, definitive anti-heroes. Um, Also, the reappropriation of of noir archetypes um, uh, around the gender stereotypes that that the the genre tends to give rise to. And I I think that there's something very interesting if you look at preparations as basically the story of a femme fatale, but from the point of view of a femme fatale, because normally the femme fatale in film noirs is is the the creature of least agency and least interiority. She is so much a projection of everybody else's fantasies. Um, but this, to me, was sort of like if you, if you can imagine a film noir told from the point of view of that person. And not only is she a film, femme fatale, but she's also um, so she's also the protagonist, and she's also the the sort of the gumshoe who's trying to solve the mystery. Um, so she's sort of all of those noir archetypes uh, rolled into one. And I also just genuinely got a kick out of, there's a almost a narrative faint and parry in it where she's a neurosurgeon. She's a very, very brilliant neurosurgeon. And th- because it's about her her potential mental deterioration, uh, which is a process that she's almost, as well as undergoing, she's also with the scientific part of her brain kind of clinically Almost detachedly amused by or interested in, um, and want, wanting to investigate. So, because she's, you know, it, it is about that that deterioration or potential de- deterioration that she's potentially delusional and has potentially made up this entire love affair. And she literally works uh, as a brain surgeon. There's a moment early on where where I was just convinced that I knew where this was going to go. And obviously, what's going to happen is that she's going to be in some high stakes situation. And she's going to, the, the scalp is going to slip. She's going to make some terrible uh, career ending and, and life, possibly life ending uh, error. And that never happens. And I just found that so refreshing that she's just extraordinarily good at her incredibly difficult job and that that one track can go along and she can still like show up for work and and brilliantly solve people's brain neurological issues Um, so yeah I just it's a really enjoyable film and it has one of the low-key sexiest scenes the sexiest non-sex scenes I think um, in that very strange but lovely moment when they end up walking home together but on opposite sides of the street um, so yeah, it's just, a, it's a delightful film.
2: And I, I guess I'll just mention another film that's on my list. It's also in the Binda Noir uh, area, which is the Whistler's, the Cornelia Puramboyou film, which is very, very different in terms of where it's coming from, definitely not coming from a female point of view. Um, but uh, at the same time, I just found it um, It's probably one of the films that I had the most fun with um, this past year. Uh, it's sort of a flex from a filmmaker who is 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 a lot, you know, sparer in his approach to storytelling um, than he is with this one, where it's just sort of like this explosion of music and color, while also like maintaining some of the same preoccupations as he has. And I and I think also in, in terms of uh, having fun with 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 genre and doing something unique with it. I think we have an, another film that I, I know that you've talked about a lot on the podcast. Nick is Baccarat. Um, and those are both films I think I saw on the same day or within a day of it of, of one another in Cannes in 2019. It says a lot about both films that they've stuck in my in my memory so much in, in in this year. I'm glad you you brought up uh, The Whistlers because that,
0: that's and of course Baccarat. But uh, yeah, also The Whistlers. Just that's a movie that I think fell out of view for a bit. I, I sometimes there's something about Cornelio Boyu's movies that the particular footprint they have isn't as you know it's it's insistent
2: as big but but they just keep turning around in your head it says a lot for his 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 filmography that um he makes films that are entirely comprised or has made films entirely comprised of uh watching a vhs tape of a, a football match and yet uh the whistlers is the one that's considered a minor work even though it's has like you know 100 times the budget um, and and sort of narrative ambitions, um, but that he's established such a reputation and being able to do so much with so little that in some ways this is is, is a more minor affair. But I actually think in terms of just pure cinema, there are a few films that, that I enjoyed more.
3: It's funny because I think it feels like you're directly um, or, or indirectly or subtly alluding to to what I felt about it because I'm a massive Poron fan. I think of all of the Romanian new wave. He has always been my favorite. I love his skewed sense of humor. I think ever since, I think, um, I guess the treasure um uh, which was I mean, I saw his earlier ones as well, and really enjoyed them, but treasure was the one that that I, mm-hmm. where I suddenly clicked into oh this is this is my guy now, and then infinite football was genuinely one of my favorite films of last year. Sure. Um, I think, it's, I think it's an absolute masterpiece and it's a sneak attack masterpiece and utterly hilarious and one of the most beautiful character studies just a tremendous film and I still think about the really bizarre way it ends when it goes off down that road and then there's this sort kind of stork animation thing that happens at the end just gorgeous and, and surprising and whimsical, and as a result I was so excited for The Whistlers, in fact I I put it as my, my number one most anticipated film of that can, I I bigged it up on the first canned podcast thing that I did, and I was really excited to to be assigned to review it for Variety. And I found it so disappointing compared to all of his previous stuff. And for a lot of the reasons I think that that Eric has has sort of outlined there, it just felt to me so artificial to to what I have expected from him or to, to where I think his strengths really lie um and the bigger budget and the, the going abroad like leaving Romania um just and and uh adopting elements of of noir um I just it, it was it amounted to a sort of a real granola mix for me It didn't it didn't work at all so I was so disappointed by that but I am I'm glad to hear that it has some fans because I, I want him to keep on making movies forever
2: it's it's one of those things where like and I you know your 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 perspective is entirely warranted and and i think that i could easily have it or have had it but it's one of the things where i don't know like there's 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 ways in which those of us who pay close attention to film careers which are you know those those careers merit our our close attention or or the good work uh, merits our attention there's also just the simple fact of sometimes that can be imprisoning to artists too and i think that mm-hmm. there's something about this film that just felt like a, a sort of a liberated work where it's less conscious or l- really not thinking about us. <laughs> it's just sort of the film that he wanted to make. And I think that energy, whether or not it works or not is something that I respond to.
3: Definitely, definitely. I think it is, I mean, he, I think he is definitely having fun with it and um, you can see him in, indulging a bunch of things that he has really never gotten to indulge before.
0: Um, so I thought maybe we could shift into uh, kind of a final final round each person just mentions one filmmaker this year where they're just eager to see what they do next maybe the movie wasn't even great uh, or you know uh, definitely not
2: perfect but you want to see what they're doing next that is a that's a fantastic question maybe i will throw a name out there that made a film that has not come out theatrically but i think is one of the great festival films of the year that was under the radar in a lot of ways which is the viewing booth by renan Alexandrovitz, and i think that Non, uh, sort of like on a low level, is there, again mostly mostly beneath the surface. Has spent nearly two decades making, putting together, you know, an ongoing project of not only like looking into, you know, a, a region, Israel and Palestine, but then also understanding where what function he has as a filmmaker, and artist, uh, an artist making films in that space, and who he has a right to speak for, and who he is making films to. And there's something about that project as it's coming together and, and culminated in the viewing booth is makes me just, you know, I, I want to hear everything he has to say and I want to see everything he might make going forward because I truly don't know where the project goes next. Um, it's sort of the last thing that I wrote for for Film comment, um, which is, you know, just basically the, the entirety of the film is watching a young woman watch footage and have her comment on what, she sees and how she sees, and 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 winds up being a, a pretty profound demonstration of um, the slipperiness that we all are experiencing in terms of what to believe, what not to believe, um, how to polemicize what could be or should be, just strict documentary footage. Um, and it's an amazing film, um, and you know does what it does in about seventy-four minutes. Um, and I, I, I want to sort of follow up with Amy to find out all the distributors I should be talking to to make sure that they've seen The Viewing Booth if they haven't already. But yeah, that's a film that I think that I, I'm hoping we're talking about more in 2021, and that's a filmmaker, like I said, who I'm, I'm just really, really interested in where his own moral inquiry will lead beyond this one. Yeah, that's a movie that I've I've, I've also happened to have seen. The Viewing
0: Booth, uh, Renan Alexandrovich, that's, yeah, just a really remarkable work. Does anyone anyone else have a filmmaker that uh, comes to mind for this? Think of it as, who who do you want to be in your best of 2012?
4: (laughs) Well, I'm going to twist your question a bit in order to advance uh, my agenda of French coming-of-age films uh, buried by Netflix. (laughs) Um, But I I really loved Rebecca Zlotowski's An Easy Girl. Um, This is a filmmaker that I actually wasn't familiar with before, and after seeing this, I... Quickly um, watched all of her earlier work, uh, but I, after this, I realized that this is someone I want to be following in, in the coming years. But an easy girl is very simply about you know a awkward high schooler living in Cannes um, and going into summer with her twenty two year old cousin who's come home. Her cousin lives in Paris. Her mother died the year before. And now she's returned. She's extremely sexually candid. She's wearing this like slinky designer clothes, like crazy Chanel bags and stuff. Um, And so, you know, over the period of a few weeks, the protagonist kind of naively follows her around into this, you know, crazy high society whirlwind that, you know, her cousin's introducing her to um, because she pretty much uh, cozies up to these older wealthy men and kind of teaches her the way of, you know, sort of transactional relationships. It's a movie that, that understands coming of age as an act of spectatorship and watching and observing. And it follows our protagonists through those early stages into, you know, becoming a participant of that and adopting the manner of this model or this example figure that she's watching in the first place. And in this case, her cousin is actually uh, in real life, this reality star um, that Zlodowski casted. Um, it's, her name is Zahia Dehar. She's a very prominent French celebrity, kind of like, um, like a Kim Kardashian type. But, you know, she came to the public view Around 2010, she was involved in this sex scandal that involved a few of you know France's leading soccer players. Um, they were accused of paying her for sex when she was underage, um, and since then she's kind of blown up and she's like you know has a reality TV show, is a model, is just kind of like a public figure. And so, I, d- I just thought it was you know an excellent use of you know a real life person in French media. You know, in addition to that, it's, it's, just, it's just a lovely film. It has these calm, beautiful images. It's like set at the beach. Um, it's a wonderful film for if you, if you love cinema of gestures of just like observing people and their, the exchanges that go on just like through gazes, through, through looking. Anyways, it's very Romerian film in that sense and, and one of my absolute favorites of the year.
0: I, I like that film as well, and, it, and it's. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up because Rebecca Zlotowski was kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe had a couple of films that weren't hugely popular. Uh, yeah, I, I hope this one uh, can resurface, and it begins here. Um, so, uh, and then there were two.
3: Yeah, I, I can go. Um, also, just to say to Beatrice, I, I remember watching uh, a Zlotowski film uh, ages ago, Lea Seydoux and Tahar Rahim, called Grand Central, about to to uh one oh. affair that happens in a nuclear power plant um and i remember really liking it even if i i think i recall uh not being wholly convinced by the way it ends but but really really liking it up to that point so maybe that's a, a good a good spot to to start your zlotowski uh, retrospective um okay pressure so many this has been a, a year for me of uh incredible debuts actually i've seen a lot of really um startling first films among them my mexican pretzel yes you didn't think i was going to plug it again but there i am i'm plugging it again um, so nuria jimenez Lorang, dying to see what she can make next especially considering the type of film that my mexican pretzel is um, because it's found footage i'm, I'm really uh, interested to see where she goes where she doesn't have that anymore um but i have ultimate confidence because it's such a a clever uh, narrative and such a a brilliant investigation of cinematic truth that she has um, an incredible uh, future, incredibly bright future ahead of her. Um, I also wanted to just quickly shout out uh, Zhang Qi, who is a new Chinese filmmaker who made a film called Single Cycle, which is uh, far too um, elusive and ambivalent a film to, to try and um, go into here. But just to say that it's a particularly special um, uh, film I'm from China in a year when I think we, I, I, I certainly have found it very difficult to um, to know as many uh, emerging Chinese filmmakers as I had been used to. I think. Because of, uh, I think there was some kind of virus or something. Um, so uh, yes, jung And then also wanted just to talk about uh, quickly about uh, Kazik Radwanski's um, "Anne at Thirteen Thousand Feet," which I saw again two years ago in, in Toronto. Um, I'm, I think it's a. Tr- I think it was a, a really terrific film, starring an amazing Derek Campbell performance um and am he also made the films Tower and How Heavy This Hammer and I'm always I'm now uh, fully on board with whatever he wants to do next and I guess uh finally I'm going to call out my boy Adil Khan Yerjanov who is my favorite Kazakh auteur who did a film called Yellow Cat this year in um in Venice um which I absolutely adored a really funny a really droll sense of humor and he has just a, an incredibly powerful way of framing a scene uh his Film from last year, uh, A Dark, Dark Man, is also definitely worth uh, uh, seeking out. But take the, the title as, as a warning. It's an incredibly dark film. Yet again, uh, with this in, in amazing vein of, of humor and drollery that running through it. He also did, um, he had a set a, a regard film called The Gentle Indifference of the World, which ironically is my least favorite of his films. But um, I am totally here for whatever Yerzhanov does next.
0: All right. Uh, So, Amy, I guess you'll get the last last word on the next filmmaker.
1: (laughs) So, Alexander Nano, the Romanian documentary filmmaker who made Collective, who I just think is an absolutely great documentary filmmaker, and I would love to see what he's going to do next. And since it takes him, at least, I mean, he has such an interesting method of going in and shooting a situation that is interesting and then taking that footage and doing the research on what's behind that afterwards. So it takes him two years to put together a film, uh, but I would certainly want to see what the follow-up to Collective is, which is on my 10 best list. Um, and also I want to see what Lily Horvat does, who made, preparations to be together for an unknown period of time um i think that's a film you can interpret in many ways and i love jessica's interpretation but i would never think of her as a femme fatale she's such a klutz uh, and she is so except when she's operating and she's so feeling her way into this situation that she doesn't know if it's deja vu or real or what is going on with her. But I think Lily Horvat is just an amazing filmmaker. And I really like it that she shoots in film in 35 millimeter. So those are my two.
0: We've, uh, we've covered a wonderful selection of, of movies that I, I don't know. I, I just feel like I'm going to look at other top 10 lists and, and they're going to kind of pale uh, in comparison to our, to what we've put together. So uh, I'll just end by thanking all of you for a wonderful conversation um, and good luck to all for, for, for the next year. And uh, thanks again for, for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Nick. Thank
3: you so much, Nick. This was so much fun. Cheers for having me on. Thanks everyone.
0: You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. For a list of the movies discussed in this episode and other writing, sign up for my newsletter at repold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.